if you think you came here to get a degree from Cornell, like you can leave now and I can get somebody else. You came here to become a scholar activist. You need to use every skill set for our community because most of our community and people will never ever be in higher education. Welcome back to Wait Holds Up, a podcast where we talk to homegirls, experts, and others to help us live our most authentic lives. I'm Jessica. I'm Yarel. How's it going, everyone? We're so happy that you're checking out the podcast today because we have an amazing, a dope-ass guest. You've probably heard of her. She is an activist. She is an organizer, a community organizer, a scholar. A journalist, she does so many things. Rosa Alicia Clemente will be joining us, and we've got lots of stuff to talk about, Jess. Yes, I think, you know, some of the key takeaways that you all can look forward to is she really shared how the Bronx, growing up, growing up in the Bronx, New York, how that shaped who she is and really led her down this path of activism and work empowering her community. She also talks about, you know, as someone who's working on her PhD, she gives advice and insight on what it's like being a black Puerto Rican in academia. And of course, she um, lets us know how she stays grounded and focused during, you know, all of her activism and how she connects with her girls. So I think that she gave us dropped so many gems in this episode. So I'm really, really excited for you all to hear. I know. And before we get into that, you know, Yarel, since we do talk a lot about education later, I'm really curious about your own personal experience. I know we've actually gotten a lot of questions from y'all um, online about what it was like when we were in college many, 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 many moons ago, um, you know, <laughs> what our experiences were like. And Yarel, you not only did your undergrad and graduate, so, you know, do you, can you tell a distinction between one experience and the other? Yeah, let's let's for sure. I mean, I'm rocking my Miami sweatshirt from Boom. like a long ass time ago. Uh, I don't. I didn't do this on purpose. I did not do it on purpose. <laughs> I need my Rutgers swag. Sure. You do. Um, for me, you know, my my college experience was very interesting. I did undergraduate at the University of Miami. I went to graduate school at USC once I was back home in LA. Um, very scary, but also very. Um, powerful because it was worth of a lot. It was it was it was worth so much for me. I'm the first in my family to go to college. My parents didn't even finish high school in Mexico, so it was a very interesting world to step in. Um, and being a, a Mexican girl from Miami, going to school across the country, across the continent in Florida, was very eye-opening it was life-changing it was difficult but it was it was a very beautiful experience and then and then graduate school was like something completely different because I was already working and um and I was managing trying to manage you know work and and um and the college life which was also another situation for me because when you're in graduate school nobody wants to be friends I don't know about peeps that are listening to us, like, and if you will um, agree or not, but for me, it felt like everybody was already on the hustle that they were just so focused on getting that graduate degree. Like, they didn't have time to hang out. They didn't have time to socialize. They didn't have time to, like, oh, chit-chat or to go to a game or to go to, like, an event. Everybody was there to get their degree. Mind you, USC is a very expensive school, so it was like no time to play around. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, th that was my experience. It was a, my graduate degree. I felt like was much felt much easier than my um, like getting my your graduate degree. Yeah, like the, classes like and the everything. workload, the classes, the workload felt easier, hmm. and like it just it just flew by because I think I was already so busy with life itself. Well, I'm curious because being the first in your family to go to college, I wasn't, you know, my sister had gone, my parents had gone later in their lives to get their undergraduate. So being the first to go to college in your family, also flying across the country, did you feel prepared for that experience? Um, did you feel like you were armed with all the necessary resources? Like, how did you cope the first few months or even year? Mm -hmm. 
Oh, heck no, I wasn't ready at all. I, I actually went to college by myself. Like my parents didn't even fly with me to Miami. My Damn. mom didn't want to because she was super sad and upset that I decided to go away from oh. home for college. So she, she went in through, she went through a huge, like just, um, emotional state of being that was just very sad. Like her feeling that I was gone mm. and dealing with that sense of like, Oh, her first child was leaving. And then my parents didn't really know anything about college life. So it was just kind of like, okay, my dad was supposed to take me out. Something happened with my little brother and I was just like, it's fine. I'll do it on by myself. And it was just one of those things like when you see or watch movies or hear stories or like you pack your bags and you just get there and you're just like, I'm here, yeah. Miami, I'm living at the dorms. That That's what it was for me. Uh, it was scary at first. It was lonely. Mm. Um, but it was also just a place where it opened my my heart it opened my mind to like all the possibilities and then it also grounded me like it connected me back to like the things that I loved about home right the things that I loved about my culture about um my my family my friends everything that I kind of had left behind or left back home so yeah it was it was very interesting the first year and then I think it got it got better as like I was finding myself you know in, in college and meeting friends and like really like building myself too you know there was parts of me that I I didn't really understand and there was parts of me that were were really coming to surface with everything that I was experiencing in Miami you know being alone being by myself in a completely new place with complete with different people um yeah it was like also building that shell so that that's what it was for me yeah. It, I mean, I can only imagine how um, intimidating that experience is, because even for me right. having, you know, I went to school an hour away from home. I dormed on campus, but I got to see my parents multiple times in a month. Um, and so when I think about the way that like so many people are unprepared for college, even if you're quote unquote are prepared and do have a support yeah, system, yeah. it can just really like shake your world and I think the one thing that I wish I'd known more about college was all of the opportunities mm -hmm. that you could find when you're at school and yeah. the ways that you should intern the ways that you should network and those are things that are I think our community it's never harped on enough um at right. all and so that would have benefited me greatly just so that by the time I had left college I would have felt like okay I tried X, Y, and Z already, and I know I don't like those things, rather than wasting right. time. Well, you know, whether mm. it was a waste is, you know, at this point, you can't, I don't know, because it all led me to this place. But I do think, like, I wish I had known more. And I think that, in a sense, like, even though my parents had gone to college, there still was so much that they, they didn't know, because they went yeah. to college when they were in their 30s. They'd already had kids. They'd already oh, had wow. careers. Um so it was like they went back to school. So I just think that, you know, having these conversations like the one we're about to um, air right now with Rosa and just having conversations between like your friends and the community that you build online right now is so important because it's about hearing from people's past experiences so that you can make the most of every experience that yeah. you go into. For sure. Um, you know, I'm, you mentioned just that you would go back home to, to that you would see your, your parents. Was there ever a time when you were like, okay, I need to, I, I, you were not taking in as much as that college life because you were, you still had that connection back home and totally. you still were going. Yeah. And I just sort of had to, um, like, just like almost like wean myself off. Right. Of like, just like, okay, yeah, I need yeah, to yeah. be more independent. I need to be um, able to just like not run back because I think I was missing experiences, whether it was building like relationships. Mm. I definitely feel like I did not get the most out of my classes. And that's not necessarily the fault of like going home, but I think that it was again, just like how naive I was to what these those four years meant and could mean for the rest right. of my life. Right, man, mm -hmm. that's so powerful. Cause that's so true. Once you're in it, once you start, it, you don't realize when you're when you're older or later on in life how 
important and how they're forming you those years, right? I graduated uh, undergrad in three years. And now I look back and I'm like, what was I thinking? And that's something that I always give young girls. I, that's the advice that I give young girls whenever they ask me about college. I'm like, don't rush it. Like, enjoy it. If it's gonna, if you want to take extra classes somewhere because you want to learn about, I don't know, anatomy or geography, like, do it. If you want to study abroad in two countries, do it. If you want to take a quarter off to work on something to volunteer do it because then it you know time flies by and you're in the real world and then it gets really real real fast and then those opportunities are no longer available for to you absolutely um, or they look really absolutely. different yeah so you yeah, know exactly I, I i think that there's just so much i wish i'd known but you know we can't go back so the best that we can do as leaders in the space uh, is you know a like share our own examples but then the other opportunity is to then have conversations with someone like rosa who is such an activist and advocate in the community and who really really is someone that you know her story is very inspiring and i think that having been someone who has spent a lot of time in academia i think she offers a lot of insight that if you are climbing that ladder and you you know you're in undergrad and planning to go beyond that um, especially if you're in a predominantly white institution i think she offers a lot for for everyone who's either had the experience or is living through it now so we're super excited yeah. for you to hear this episode and we're so thankful to rosa for her time so without further ado, here is Rosa Clemente. Rosa, what's up? Welcome to the podcast. I um, am very excited to have you on the show. And I know Yadel and I have been talking about having this opportunity for a while. And we want to start a little bit from the beginning, we want to take it back, Rosa. You've been an activist, obviously, for, for decades at this point, but you were born in the Bronx and your life started in the Bronx. And we want to know like, how the Bronx played a character and a role in your life and in your upbringing to really like take you to the place that you think you're at today. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a great question. Nobody's ever posed it that way, honestly, in all the interviews I've done. Um, you know, to this day, my father still has his business in the Bronx, 51, two years after 1969. I mean, he's straight came from Puerto Rico and got a bodega. And it's just like um, put our family in a way different financial situation where a lot of my cousins who I've grown up with are still, you know, pretty much in the same apartment, same street and all of that. Not that they're the same people, but that circumstances. So, you know, for me, like I was born in the Bronx. I, I, I saw one of the biggest blackouts. Like I saw hip hop being created, even though I didn't know it at that time. Cause a lot of my um, cousins, especially um, female cousins would take me out to the park or roller skating or any of that with them you know like and then um saw the bronx burning and my mom make a decision to move us not even that far away just that we would have better public schools actually so yeah the bronx is itself if you're from it a character for sure you know and um it's still the least gentrified borough in new york and that speaks a lot to uh the community the people there but the whole the bronx is actually the most diverse county in the united states of america oh. right that's so yeah. dope. a lot of african a lot of indian and pakistani um, folks have been the recent immigrants after Mexicanos and Guatemalans and Hondurans into the Bronx. You know, like I grew, grew up in the Bronx and it was straight African-American, Puerto Rican. In the Italian part, you didn't go down because you could be risking your life going into right. the Italian neighborhood, which is on Arthur Avenue in the Bronx and still exists. Like, you know, you could get the best cannoli lasagna in the Bronx on Arthur Avenue. <laughs> but um, when my family was growing up, especially a lot of my cousins, um, there was a lot of um, anti-Puerto Rican-ness, um, just a lot of gang activity from, or mafia activity right. from the Italians to mm -hmm. other folks. So yeah, I grew up with all of that. 
all of that and mad cousins that are still there and family and like I said my dad how did how did growing up in in that environment at Rosa growing up also with hip-hop being such a big influence in your life now how did that shape your sense of of community and of advocacy well I mean I don't think I understood like community in any of that till I went to college I mean I understand my family you know and I probably I'm sure sometime in 12th or 11th grade learned about like community and groups and all of that. But um, it wasn't until I went to college that I really understood anything about like myself with the history, community organizing that. Like, it's crazy because I'm always like, how did I grow up and didn't know about the Young Lords of the Black Panthers or just like a lot of struggles. Um, Puerto Rican struggles around education, you know, the the most thing that I remember from that time period, even after we moved from the Bronx um, to Westchester County, which is only 20 miles away from the Bronx, but the Bronx is one of the poorest congressional districts and Westchester County is the second richest suburb after Beverly Hills. So I had this crazy experience of growing up in this like Lala utopic land called Elmsford, New York, where we were the only Latinos at that time and everybody else was African-American, white American, some Asian. And part of that is because Westchester County housed a lot of corporations, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, MasterCard, American Express, Nintendo. So I didn't really know that until years when I was in college and probably even when I went to get my master's at Cornell, where I was like, I grew up around all of this and I didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. But my mom would take us every weekend to my family. So the older I got, I was like, yo, my cousin should be going to college. Mm-hmm. Like the expectation is that Rose is going to college because my mom worked to put us in a public school that for all intents and purposes could be a private school. But one of my best friends, the older I got, she's like, listen, just because we live in this society, don't think everything is equal. And from there, I started, I was already going to her house a lot and seeing like a very intact black family that worked their way through the South civil rights and are now here in Westchester County and own house and everybody, is taken care of. Mm-hmm. So all of this came into play basically in college where I was just like, how did I live such a um, sheltered life but still go through a lot of stuff that my mom assumed I wouldn't go through because she moved us. I wonder a lot, like, did my mom and dad definitely enforce me being Puerto Rican important, but I think my mom just tried to shield us from so much that it became a bad thing. So by the time I went to college, basically, I was like, this shit is crazy. I don't know anything. Yeah. What the hell? It's interesting because my parents both grew up in the South Bronx and also were not very familiar with the Young Lords. And just since I know a lot of people who listen to us are Cali-based, I will say, like, if the Bronx and East Harlem, like are not far from each other, but they were like a world apart, if that makes sense, right? And so Mm -hmm. I think it's like, for a lot of Puerto Ricans that did grow up in in like the Bronx, East Harlem was not a spot that they went to on the weekends or like an area that like, there was a whole like like community there sometimes. And then there was the Bronx. And so things were happening, I think, in these like two universes that felt like you know, on a map, it's like, oh, that's right there. But in like that reality, it was like, it could have been happening in California for all intents and purposes. That's very true, yeah. You know, I'm really curious um, with what you're saying regarding like your cousins stayed in the Bronx and stayed in an environment that maybe for them, education wasn't as harped on the way that it was for you. And there was an expectation on yourself and so the expectation was always that, you know, I'm going to go to college. Everyone expects to how to go to college. How was it internally for you? Did you have that expectation of like, I'm going to go to college when you were, you know, in high school? Were you like, did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I knew by like ninth grade that I definitely wanted to go to college, but I also knew that I wanted to be a teacher. You know, what's funny is like most people who ask me questions about the Bronx, it's always around hip hop, not digging deep. 
all I can say is like the Bronx made me who I am. You know, my circumstances made me who I am. And I think my cousins have given the opportunities that I was given would be where I am right now. I really believe that. And I got to definitely understand that the older I get. And now to this day, like at the end of the day, my cousins in the Bronx, you know, I know they have my back, even if they don't understand everything you know part of it is about being family but part of it was also like a lot of my young my um female cousins was like listen don't get caught up don't get pregnant go to school go to college like change this my parents weren't super on me about going to college like when i told my mom i was going she's like all right you know fill out the paperwork wow. i don't really think my under dad was understanding that like i'm about to go be out like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but they didn't put pressure on me. But my environment, in a good way, all of us were at least expected to apply and do something mm -hmm. more. Was there a moment in your life that you're just like, education needs to change for women of color like myself? I want to get into education because of something that happened, or was it just something, an inclination in you growing up as a, you know, growing up? Yeah, I mean, so like I had my family in the Bronx. I, I had me and my nuclear family in Westchester County, still in New York State. But um, my mom grew up in Youngstown, Ohio. Well, she didn't grow up in Youngstown, Ohio. What happened basically is my, my abuelo was one of the first migrants um, that they put like what they call heat bottles on like cargo planes. There's like map pictures people should see about like just hundreds of men sitting in a plane, like as cargo. They're not in a sea. They're like on a cargo plane with these harnesses that strapped them into the floor. And um, so a lot of my youth was spent in Youngstown, Ohio. Cause my abuelo, when he came here, they basically were like Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Youngstown, Ohio. He chose Youngstown, Ohio. Him and my abuela had already five children, which included my mom that was still in Puerto Rico. But eventually my abuela had 16 children. Okay. Your abuela? Uh, my abuela, all home births, no twins. And Hi. up until two years ago, I had all my 15 aunts and uncles with me. Um, one of my amazing. A couple years ago. So I grew up also within that. My mom was really good at like, we're going to the Bronx. We're going to Youngstown, Ohio. We're going to go to a park in Utah. I'm taking you to the Grand Canyon. Like she was wow. really about family. And when I looked at all my family pictures, it's our family that's at everybody's thing. Hmm. Even if everybody couldn't, other people couldn't go. It was like Maria, my mom, and she's not in the pictures because she's taking the pictures. Mm. So I had, all my titis have been successful and whatever that means. But my titi Lucy was a teacher in Youngstown, Ohio, and she taught in public school. And me and her, everybody has their titi and every titi has the one niece or nephew that they like the most, even though they're not gonna <laughs> play it. That's me and my titi Lucy, because she turned me on to teaching. Mm. you know and she's always supported me 100 percent, even when other people didn't and uh, so yeah that's when I was like I want to be a teacher you know and um so I I knew right away that I that's what I wanted to do I also never had pretty much no one in my family and my father in included I didn't really face patriarchy my dad was the one that would tell my mom like yo leave her alone like she could go out with her friends She's wow. not going to do some crazy thing or like she's math smart. She's going to college, you know, that was my dad. So I also, when I went to college and people were talking about like feminism and machismo, I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Cause my dad mm -hmm. and none of my like male deals or whatever treat me like that. But definitely my titis were like way ahead of the game. That's to this day, like, we're like the only reason the dudes even like survive is because one sister's taking care of one of the other deals right now, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I just always was around strong, strong Boricua mm. women. Uh, like, that's always. a dream. That's I a love dream. that. I love that. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that's beautiful is you've been surrounded by a strong Boricua women. And I think that all of us can say you're absolutely a very strong Boricua woman and one that many people look up to and admire. And I think especially for 
you know, not just your activism, but the way that you're making strides in academia, right? You got mm -hmm. your degree, your bachelor's, then you went and got your master's, and now you're pursuing your PhD. And the, we all know that the world, for, I don't even know the statistics, but in terms of what it looks like for POCs going to college, to then master's, to then PhDs, mm -hmm. it just gets diminished at mm -hmm. the higher right. time. And so right. I, you know, I think in looking at you, I definitely want to know a little bit about that experience of getting into higher academia um, and what your experience has been like in pursuit of your PhD. You, and, and because it sounds like the spaces that you inhabited when you were younger, even if they weren't necessarily quote unquote made for you, at least at home, your mom made you feel like, and your dad, like you belong here. Yeah, and so totally. what has happened when you've entered spaces solo and then you're like encountered with the reality of like, sh like shit, like, do I belong here? Yeah. So f because I had uh, a lot of like family support and once I got into school as an undergraduate, like I had already been around white people in my town. Mm -hmm. Right. So like when I began as a in my first year to see acts of racism, when I saw, um, you know, that there was definitely like a predominantly white um, population, even though it was a state school, my thing with like, particularly even the white girls, I was like, I've been around these bitches all my life. So for me, I was like, don't fucking let her talk to you like that, like to my sweet mate, right? Like, yeah. I was like, we're not stealing shit. Y'all stealing shit from each other, you know? And so I had this different thing where I didn't give them, or maybe like I didn't view white people as a threat, mm -hmm. which they gave me like a different experience of like, who are they talking to like that? <laughs> yeah. Well, other um, African-American, Latina women who we, of course, are the super, super, super minority on a predominantly white institution were like, yo, you shouldn't talk to them like that. I was like, what? I was like, I know these chicks. Like, I was, so I had this, I didn't really like let whiteness enter my space. So my second year of college, though, is when I began to be like more active because I hadn't done that well my first year. Too many parties, not like not paying attention. I didn't like my major is political science. And the second year, I went to a meeting, and this is in the 1990s, and it's also state school. People who are listening throughout the country would know like the California state school system, um, the SUNY Albany system, like these state institutions. So for me. Like my second year, I was just like, I'm not happy, but I don't know what is gonna make me like happy within taking classes. And I went to, at that time you would table and all the organizations would be out. And I was like, yo, Astuba, Albany State University Black Alliance. And it really was because about the brother who was sitting there was just like nice. Mm -hmm. While other people at the other tables weren't even trying to talk. And he's like, you should join a SUBA. And I'm like, oh, but I'm not black. He's like, what are you? I'm like, I'm Puerto Rican. He's like, oh, okay, so you're an African descendant? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't, I never heard that term. Mm. And he broke it down. And he's like, you know, but there's also Fuerza Latina, the Latino um, organization. So I went to both and I was involved in bo both. But by the end of my sophomore year, my politics awakening and all again this time because of black women professors so i was i already took a class on mass incarceration i started seeing like um people now that we didn't know about but we all know like um sonia sanchez maita morena vega like louis farrakhan came to speak on our campus like I, and Milana Karanga, I was exposed to all these speakers, all this stuff. I joined the SUB, I joined Fuerza Latina, but Fuerza Latina was mad bougie on the Latino stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yo, I'm not down with that. Plus everybody in here wants to speak Spanish. I'm completely bilingual, but you can't just have a meeting in Spanish and assume that everybody else around here who's quote Hispanic, because that's the term mm -hmm. we were using, is Spanish speaking. I joined the SUBA, I like dug in and 
um, by the end of my sophomore year, people nominated for, for me to run. And I ran and um, I became the first woman, the first Puerto Rican woman of a major black student union in New York state. And that was again, like in the nineties, but you know, it was like in the papers because yeah. it was the nineties. And um, I changed my major from political science to Africana studies. Through that experience and against speakers, Dr. James Turner comes, he is from Chicago, Illinois. At that time in Chicago, Illinois, Detroit, Michigan, there's a lot of labor unionizing going on. So speaks on my campus about that, but also that he um, was part of Malcolm X's organization before Malcolm got assassinated. I got introduced to Dr. Turner when I graduated um, as an undergrad, I tried to get my master's in education, but it was too white. Ooh. I was like, no, this is too white. Like, they're not talking about our children. You know, this is not a, Euro, this is a Eurocentric curriculum. I don't want to be part of that. And I was just working and Dr. Turner somehow found me and was like, do you want to come to Cornell? I was Ooh. like, what? He was like, your master's, but I want you to study the Young Lords and the Counterintelligence Program. Do you want to come? I was like, yeah. And three months later, wow. I went to Cornell. I was there for two years. Dr. Turner's my mentor, has been my mentor since. And then I took almost what? I graduated from Cornell in 98. I took a 10-year hiatus mm -hmm. off academia. That's when all my, um, well, more of my organizing stuff, me running for vice president, all that happened. After I ran for vice president, no one was trying to hire me. Mm. Um, it was a pretty bad experience in terms of how I got cut out of a lot of spaces that I even helped to build. Was that because and you were running the same year that Obama? Because I ran, yeah, because yeah, mm. me and Cynthia ran. And Cynthia called me and was like, yo, I'm going to get my PhD. I don't have another option. And I was like, yeah, I'm not trying to be back in academia. And then one night my husband was like, no, you should get your PhD. Don't you want to like let other young women know about your journey around racial identity and everything you went through? Like they, you need more role models or people out there. You need to mentor people. And two days later, Dr. Shabazz from UMass Amherst, who was a chair of the department, called me. He said, you need a break from the movement. You need to come up here and take classes and study and write and process everything you've been through. Um, and you'll be Dr. Clemente, you know? And mm. that's how I ended up at UMass Stamhurst in my program. And now I'm ABD. I've been, I should have been written my dissertation, but I have to finish it now, like on mm -hmm. the deadline, so I have no choice. But, you know, one thing I have done through my PhD process that I probably wouldn't recommend to anybody if they wanted to really finish fast is, I know Dr. Shabazz was like, come up here and take a break, but I never took a break from organizing our activism. Mm -hmm. What really happened is once I was at UMass Amherst, that was like 2012, that's when all the stuff started happening around um, Trayvon, Dream Defenders, um, Dreamers in general, like a lot of activism blowing up on social media. And I was mm -hmm. like, midst of that but i was geographically located at western mass i never really left but i wasn't doing a paper mm. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> and they're like wait a minute did you just do a video about rick ross and you told me your paper's late and i'm like yeah. <laughs> wait a minute when you're assigned to on? that's what i'm saying um that trajectory basically is like Black studies has always been my home. At the end of the day, I want to do my PhD for myself. But also, um, what's been really dope is the last couple of years around this explosion around Afro Black, Latino, Latina, Latinx identity. I'm like, yo, maybe this is why I didn't write it until now. Right, right. Because yeah. as the historian of the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, I, I am not a historian that that um waits a certain as a historian you're basically supposed to wait 50 years to study anything mm -hmm. and i'm like no it's pub public history is happening right now right. and at the end of the day i see myself as a public like intellectual scholar organizing and then now the last two years as i'm crazy as it's been 
I've been like, I would have never had any of these younger, particularly women, to write about. And now they're here. And they're like blowing it up. And they're using not only my work, previous work, and also putting their spin on it. So I was like, I'm supposed to write my dissertation now. Yeah. 1% of us as Latinas get are able to get less than 1% of us are able to get our PhDs. So I also understand now the, like, it's of the weight that I have to um, carry, not because Latina women can't do it, but to this day, we're not seen in academia Mm -hmm. at all, at all, like, never for the most part. Yeah. Well, like Jess said, like, these numbers, right, when we see... Uh, women, women of color in these institutions. It's like, it's just like minimal as we get higher in education. Rosa, you know, you you talk about like, uh, you know, private institutions, your experiences. What do you recommend? What do you tell students, you know, young women that are listening that have an interest maybe, you know, in, 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 in academia, in becoming a professor, in getting a PhD? Um, how do you decide on not only on degree, but what advice do you give students in choosing universities? I don't know about the advice about who wants to, you know, how you want to be in academia. Because, like, again, for me, it's part of who I am. It's not all of who I am. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's an actual problem within academia in general, that there are young people coming in that the only experience they have is like their bachelor's, master's or high, and then their PhD. And by the time they come out of there, they might be all degreed up and have all these papers and journal entries and peer reviews and all that. But you can't ever place them in the hood. Mm. Like, I can go (laughs) to whatever hood in America exists. Part of it, a little bit I grew up in it, a little bit I've been part of it, but a little bit is that my scholarship is within what we call the discipline of not just Black studies, but this um, discipline that Dr. Turner created called scholar activism. Mm-hmm. And when Dr. Turner called me and asked me to come to Cornell, when I got there and I was there with my cohort, which is usually who you are with your master's or PhD, and it's usually a small group of people, maybe eight, ten, he was like, if you think you came here to get a degree from Cornell, like you can leave now and I can get somebody else. You came here to become a scholar activist. You need to use every skill set for our community because most of our community and people will never ever be in higher education. Mm-hmm. You know, so for me, I come out of that um, scholar discipline uh, all the way up until I taught at Cal State LA. I guess it's five years, yeah, five years ago that I spent the year in LA. And all of that is, if you want to get your PhD, you have to want to get it for yourself. Yeah. You mm. can't get it for someone else. You mm. can't get it thinking like, oh, I'm going to write this dope book. And honestly, I don't really engage in academia to that extent because the flip side of all the positive things I said is if I wasn't who I was and didn't have the skin I was, the PhD can break you. Because it's people constantly trying to break down your mythology or your 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 language and all of this, how you present, who are you talking to, and all of that, you know. And um, like the it's not for the light heart. Like you gotta have a tough skin trying to come in that because everybody's trying to tear you down, mm. and that's just the truth. Um, aside from like Pan-African studies, again, Africana studies where I've been, and even in that space, sometimes I'm like, academics can be the worst. And, and the reason I feel this way is too, because I've had my foot solidly in as an organizer and quote, as an academic. And what I realized, especially during all my coursework at UMass Amherst is like, oh, all of y'all are jealous. Mm. And like, I, I even hate saying that word because it's the worst trait for me anybody could have. And it's like, oh, you ain't trying to help me. You trying to like Ooh. steal my language, my methodology and stab me in the back. Yeah. Like, I don't come from that. 
And I was like, yo, what's worse, academia or politics? And I realized the other year, academia. Wow. You Um, know? And so for all of that being said, I'm going to finish. I'm going to get my PhD. It's part of a tradition. But you got to be, like, ready to take the attack because it comes fast Mm -hmm. and furious. And it's usually because people feel inadequate about their work or feel inadequate that I can go into a community. I can go to Harvard or I can go to, like, San Quentin prison. Yeah. I'm going to present and do what I do as my authentic self. Mm-hmm. But also, lastly, for like, I as an academic really respect what I call the grassroots intellectuals, the brothers and sisters on the street, our titis and theos that make it happen with nothing, our 17 year old cousin that now has to take care of four kids because mom passed away, our people who are like COVID's killing us, we're going to like support our community. And I believe that our intellectuals and the people closest to the problems are the people always that have the best solutions. Absolutely. Mm, yep. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah. Because it's like when you say book smarts versus street smarts, it's it's this idea and I and that you have to have this degree in order to be welcomed into certain spaces. No. And it's no. such bullshit. It is. It, it is, is absolute bullshit. At the end of the day, if you're that person and when you're in your community and you break it down enough at the family barbecue, the whole family's going to be like, yo, that's my cousin. Like, she's mad <laughs> smart. Like, you know, like when, when AOC was running in the Bronx because she was running Soundview where most of my family's at, my cousins were like, yo, I don't even know. What do I do to register to vote? So I was like, here, go here. Do oh, that. that's dope. You can just wait in line. You're going to have to have ID. And I was telling her one of the times after she was elected, I was like, my cousins literally didn't even vote for me. <laughs> oh, my oh my God, that's cool. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> oh my God, that's got to make for interesting dinner conversation at the very least. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Rosa, you know, talking when you, when you speak about, uh, again, academia, it reminds me of this moment a few months ago where the news broke of this woman, of this professor at George Washington University, I believe, um, this white woman who wrote about (laughs) Jessica Krug, right? I'm not, I don't want to. Oh, you're uh, right. Yeah, yeah. okay, Jessica Krug. And I I remember reading about it. I remember sending it to Jessica and being like, what the fuck is this, right? We have, is this for real? Is this serious? Is this woman writing books? being paid as a professor at George Washington University, a very important institution in the country um, on black identity, um, uh, you know, on black history, on uh, Puerto Rican identity. Like what, what was happening? I'm just curious as to like, take us back to how you were feeling. What was your sentiment when, when this was happening? Um, do, you, do you both remember Rachel Delazol? Yeah, yeah, yeah. From the from from the NAACP. Mm-hmm. When I was in LA, I moved to LA as the Ferguson Rebellion was happening because mm-hmm. I was moving and packing and bounced to Ferguson to cover the rebellion there, and then drove across the country to LA. So I was in LA. I was um had been there for like a couple three or four months, and <laughs> this is funny. My girl Nayoka was like, "Yo, did you hear this story about this professor in Washington State?" Rachel Dolezal. And I'm like, girl, I told you the last time I just went out there to speak and I had dinner with her. And so my girl Nyoka was like, wait, the same chick? I was like, I told, because I told my girl Nyoka, I had done a gig out there the month before the, or two months before the story broke. And I came back and I even told my husband, I'm like, let me tell you, there was this fucking white girl up in there acting like she was black, right? (laughs) One of my Latina sisters brought me up there this week. That night, if anybody has ever been in like an academic setting, like you speak and or the night before they bring you, everybody has certain groups have dinner with you. And the certain group was the the black and Latina women professors of this college was like five of them Mm -hmm. because it's a small college in um, East Washington State. And. I was staying with the sister who brought me. And when I got home that night uh, with her and I was like, yo, like, why is she in the meeting? Like why is she had 
dinner with us if it was African-American, Latina professors. And, and she, my friend was like, she's Latina. I'm like, no, she's not. <laughs> oh, shit. She's black, right? I'm like, nah, dude. That's just like a white girl that got dreads. Like, I'm like, nah, she's white. What? And my girl was like, well, actually, there's been a lot of conversation about that here. <laughs> so the next day, I'm sorry. I do my lecture. She's the first one. And she goes, thank you for coming out here. Because she was a professor in the Black Studies Department. She's like, but I don't think like Latinas or Latinos should be part of Black Lives Matter. And I was like, what? Wait, what? <laughs> I was like, wait, I'm in Black Lives Matter right now. I just got arrested for that for a protest last week. What are you talking about? So then these couple of months go by and I was like, I told you. I was like, I told everybody I knew. I was like, she's a white girl posing as a black woman. And everybody hit me up like, yo, how did you know that? I'm like, I've been around these type of white girls all my life. That's how mm. I know that. Like, and mm. how did you know that? Mm. Yeah. Nobody did like a kind of like, so when the just like a crud thing dropped, I was like, yeah, makes sense. Mm. Because in academia, maybe now is different. There's not like, quote, these like background checks, right? And now people can, the thing with George Washington was like, did you, did somebody not there maybe like raise the question? Like, I don't know. But I think because of the whole, um, or a non-discussion about race, phenotype, colorism, and all of that, you particularly could be that kind of like white girl that passes as Latinas, you know, like whatever <laughs> that is. Yeah. Until, you know, somebody's like, homegirl is white. Now, I think it was appropriate for us to spend a couple days or maybe that breaking that down. But I definitely went to like my mentor, Dr. Vega, and she was like, I ain't got time for that crazy white girl. I'm in Puerto Rico trying to get us free and I'm 75. And I was like, all right, then I'll leave it Fair, at that. Right. You know? hmm. um, although maybe it was easier for people to accept her because of her whiteness. I don't know. It's just, a, that one is a little weird because yeah. when Rachel is all, you could kind of say you're biracial. Mm -hmm. And then you're in Eastern Washington State. Right. This is the state of Washington. It's not like right. outside of Seattle or Olympia. There's not a lot of us. So, but with Jace, Jessica Krug, I was like, how didn't we know this? Like mm -hmm. after, especially after Rachel Dolezal, it yeah. was weird. And I wonder how mm -hmm. many others are still hiding. Right. Um, well, that's, a, that's what I'm saying. There, there is definitely like, I think what the Rachel Jessica Crew thing can be connected to in a weird way politically is right. Like white women helped Trump get into office in 2016. And in 2020, they actually increased their rate of how many white women voted for Trump. So mm -hmm. like maybe there's a thing there where we as black and um, particularly brown feminists have been like, yo, white girls, um, they, their hands are not clean. Right. Yeah. You know, and we, we've gotten to that time period where we're like, yo, white women, women can hold up the patriarchy, but white women, neoliberal white women, they have their own reckoning. Because mm -hmm. I'm like, y'all Trump in 2016 and then you increased 6%. What is wrong with y'all? Like, y'all hate yourselves that much? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Or Maybe that's the rest of us more. <laughs> I don't like myself as a white woman, so I'm going to pose as a, like, Latina, whatever you think I might be. It's crazy. And really do nothing to then advance any causes in the process. Oh, she's secure. She has, because she has nothing to do but do what Rachel Dolezal did. She's going to write a book, and there's going to be a documentary on her on Netflix, mm -hmm. like, in two years. You yeah. Know? You know, I think... The thing that I, I really take away from like your experience in education is that you've had amazing mentors. You've had people who have absolutely had your back. I a thousand percent agree with you in terms of you saying like, now's the time for me to write my paper because it sounds like very much like people have come into your life when it's like, okay, you're ready for this next step. All right, now you need to get your butt up here. You got to do your PhD. You know, it's like you get plucked almost like at yeah, the right no. time. And yeah. I think... Um, I do genuinely believe in like God, universe, higher forces that work for our good. And I'm curious, you know, other than those elements that we can't control, what is advice that you have for people who are in these institutions right now 
who are struggling, who feel like maybe this isn't where I belong, that there needs to be a change. Um, how would you support them in this time of, of doubt, especially if their parents have never gone to college? You know, they don't have those people in their community that they can turn to. Yeah, that's so that's so interesting you said that about because I can't believe that I can say I'm a first generation. Mm. And that was I went in 1990 and that my daughter is second generation. I think about my mom a lot because I think given a different time, she would have done what she wanted to do, which is go to NYU and get her degree in photography, mm. you know, and um the reason I, I bring that up is because you don't, when things are happening in the moment, um, or you don't see like the bigger picture, you're like myopic in something. Like, you know, for a long time, my mom was my mom. And now I look at her as a woman who made really good choices, but also sacrificed what she wanted to do, which is to be a photographer, mm. which is why she's the one that has documented our family for 50 years. That makes wow. so much sense. Yeah. The one behind We're the scenes. Wow. And I recently told her, I was like, mom, oh my God, thank you. Like, cause as a historian and archivist, I'm like, I have thousands of pictures. Yeah, she captured moments. Of our family, mm. huge family, you know? Mm. So I would tell first, you know, look, any predominantly white institution that exists and you try to go in, there's already going to be like a pushback. But I think things have gotten more sophisticated where now I think there's going to be more pushback on what your politic is. So that person has to know who they are, what what is their identity, what is what what they um, are willing to sacrifice in academia to tell the truth, or are you willing to be in academia to go along to get along? Mm -hmm. That's the that's the choice that people have to make, you know. The second thing is that um, I think it's important, particularly for for young people at this moment, to um, kind of shake up everything that they've been told, you know. And even if they find it to be correct, that I think there's it's a really good opportunity for a lot of us to like upend what we think we should be doing. Yeah. Um, what we think is important, but also how we process all of this. And that for me, like the way I approach every day is like understanding that white supremacy exists. Mm -hmm. um, and that we're in a time period right now where we really have to know like who your people are. So for me, one, one of the best things I think I've done purposefully is surround myself by comrades. Mm. I have my crew that I could be like, yo, I was just trying to like do this or say this or like, this shit is crazy. How did everybody think like Biden and Harris were gonna be like super progressive or like, you mm. know, what do I say about this thing? Um, how do I approach an evil and glorious situation? Like I have a crew and they include many sisters but I got two in particular that are like, no, you're good. No, don't do that. Don't post that shit. Yeah, do that. <laughs> are you taking care of yourself? Um, how many pages have you written today? And mm. like, you said you were on a deadline, but you're like doing an Instagram live. <laughs> yes, I love that. Just one of my girls is like, girl, isn't this your time to write? I'm like, but you have to address this. <laughs> You're like, this is, this is important. Uh, <laughs> you know, but I have a great crew of comrades. And, and they're, for me, they're everything. They're my chosen family. They're the mm -hmm. ones that I know have my back no matter what you know, and I have their backs. So I think that's a very important thing. And mm -hmm. I don't think whatever the work you're doing, whatever that is, it could be as a director in Hollywood, an academic or whatever. I think we all as like black and brown, black Latina women, we have to have a crew of people around us that will just hold us up, mm -hmm. you know, but also not gas us up. Yeah, right. hold us accountable. Yeah, yeah. totally. Every step of the process. Check us. Well, yeah. 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 You know, you mentioned that they call also to check in and make sure like you're good. Right. And so 
I'm always curious with activists, with people who are very much dedicated to the cause and have to respond to things in a moment's notice. And I mean, we all know what a shit show this year has been. Um, how have you been taking care of yourself and what does, what does that self-care look like? Yeah, I don't, I don't use the term self-care, you know, um, you know, for me, if I were to say anything about self-care and I, I told this to a lot of, like a lot of the work I would be doing normally would be traveling the country to colleges and universities. And I tell all young people, the, the revolution and the freedom struggle is my self-care. Mm. Um, that being said, anybody who, who knows me well, any of my comrades, I'm like the first person to be like, where's the dinner party? Like, what are we watching <laughs> together? Meet me at the club at midnight. Um, all of that kind of stuff. You need to watch this Netflix show. I've always been that person. I've always, um, part of who I am is I do have mad levity. Like, you know, so someone's like, you're watching the crown. I'm like, yes. Yeah. This show, how evil. <laughs> yes. I'm like, this, part of it is also historical. I'm like that, a couple of things did happen. So I was a historian, I'm always like, Mm -hmm. That actually did go down. So I'm a person that everybody knows, like, yo, Rose will come to the last minute, have a dope party. I've been that. You were talking about how you like to watch your Netflix shows and they're mad random. I love, like, all my, like, little, like, um, I don't know. I watch these, like, presidential shows or, like, these, like, CSIs. And there's literally always <laughs> been a, um, a viral attack or like some sort of like <laughs> pandemic that then they resolve within like a week. So it absolutely has been something that people have been like thinking is gonna happen. <laughs> that movie, oh, oh that movie is crazy. Yes. So. But then the movie in 2012 that it came out, it's like, so they're gonna have to social distance. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, you know, it's funny that you're bringing, cause I was watching earlier on Bill Blitzer on CNN and they had a report about how viral inf infections start and just kind of like tracing it. And then you hear about this new strain, which is, doesn't change the vaccine distribution or anything, but also then like, I also have a lot of people in my crew that are like, yeah, I'm not taking that vaccine, dude. Mm. I'm like, they, right. you know, and, and part of it, no, a lot of it is obviously the experimentation on African-American mm -hmm. and Latino people and women um, and what's happening mm -hmm. in ISIS and Shania with, with our women. So I get it. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to be the first one, but, and then how do you like negotiate all that? This is on you. Like, I don't, yeah. Yeah. you know, and I think everybody's just very, like, let's try to keep it moving. It's like, maybe it's like Mother Earth being like, nah, maybe don't keep it moving like that. Right. And a lot of people have had to readjust. I don't know. My, but my whole thing is like, you know, I believe it's real. I'll stay home. I'm in Albany, New York. Maybe if I was in a bigger city, I'd feel a little bit more compelled to like, you know, go out and stuff. But it is, it's, who knew? It's like, we're living history right now. That's what we are. Exactly. We, are. we are. And we're grateful that you're out here documenting it for us so that at least I know my children and their children <laughs> can be living, getting some truth. In well, the, you in know, the so I, like, you know, having Latino women do podcasts is incredibly important. Um, as I've learned, the podcast world is overwhelmingly white. I mean, I kind of figured, mm -hmm. but right. I've been like um, talking to a couple of friends and they're like, no, nah, it's like mad, mad, mad white. So yeah, I'm always yeah. like, down and be in conversation with those sisters for sure awesome. thank you thank you no, so and much. we are we are huge fans of you we i think together we saw you at we all grow a few years ago and we were just like amazed at like your passion and your drive and and everything that you stand for um, and what in your fight so i know that you're probably really busy rosa but thank you so much we applaud everything you do. Doctora Clemente coming to you hey, real quick. Hey. We're, we're gonna be checking on you as well. Like how's that dissertation going? How's, <laughs> how's it going? So to make sure that you know um you you know you you you're making us proud. Oh well I, I appreciate that. I appreciate you for reaching out. You know I'll get my dissertation up but y'all gotta definitely keep in touch with me. Thank Most you definitely. for this. We like, will it was so good to talk to two other sisters in this time. Thank you.
glad and so thankful for the time that Rosa gave us. It was like a glimpse into her, uh, a little bit of background that we don't get to hear, Jess, that we really don't get to see from her on her social or when she speaks. So once again, thank you, Rosa, for sharing so much knowledge and for giving us a glimpse of your life behind the scenes. Yes, thank you so much. It was awesome. And, you know, we hope that you all enjoyed this episode. And if you're not already, please follow us at Weight Holds Up Pod. And if you want to hear more from Rosa, you can find her on Instagram at Black Puerto Rican PhD. PhD. That's right. That's her handle. She shares a lot of this, the work that she's doing, uh, podcast, press, speaking stuff. Uh, make sure to check her out. And of course, check us out as well on all our social, on TikTok, on Instagram, on Clubhouse. Are we on Clubhouse yet? Well, we're we individually on. We're both on Clubhouse, <laughs> but I don't think we're necessarily the podcast is. But we also, you know, if you ever want more information about where you can find and connect with us, you can visit our website at www.weightholdsuppodcast.com. And as always, we're here every Thursday. We're so thankful that y'all join us. Until next time, much love. Bye. Bye.